Welcome to membership class this morning. We're thrilled to have you here. And before I get started today, um, I am sorry that last week when I was sick, we had to cancel our lunch at our house. So um, Jody just sent everybody an email this morning. You should have got an email this morning from Jody, but if not, next Sunday, we're going to try to do a reschedule. So next Sunday for lunch um, at the Souders house at 12.30 p.m. Our address is 111 Meadow Lane in Mackinac, Illinois. So we'd love to see all of you there. And hope, hopefully most of you can still make it. We were looking forward to that so much. And it's online and watched your baptism. I was so proud of you. You did so good. So did you show up to membership class with wet hair last week? I didn't come. I was so Feelings, you know, yeah, your emotions, especially with women. Well, it's it's a it's a big thing to get in front of people and to make a public stand. And, and you did such a great job. I'm so well, proud of it you. Was towards the end, you know, where you're gonna be standing in the water <laughs> to get. I said, in the water. <laughs> yeah. I think you could tell that a little sooner. <laughs> I thought I would be. Outside. Oh, you did. I didn't realize you oh, hadn't seen them before, so I just assumed you knew that. No, okay. I told them I haven't oh. seen them. So <laughs> I didn't know. Well, so you did good. They threw that on me. Yeah. Right at the end, and I'm going. Oh. Well, I, at least the water I wasn't cold. Stand in the middle of the water, holding notes and reading them. I mean. <laughs> 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 Well, at least it was warm water, right? It wasn't. It was warm. Yeah. It was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. That was great. Well, last week, um, we, uh, you know, Chad Lehman and Mike Rassi were here, and they taught through the two first articles in your packet. The first one is "What in the World is the Church?" So actually, we need the packets today, so you can borrow this one. Yep, no problem. We're now going, we're now beyond that, and we're working through some of these articles. So last week uh, they did What in the World is the Church, and then How Should I Relate to Church Leadership. Today we're going to do How to Think About Choosing a Church, and Is Church Membership Really Right for Me? Okay, so let me pray, and then we'll get started with How to Think About Choosing a Church. Father God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your love. I just pray that you please bless, uh, bless us today. We need you so much, Father. We, we just recognize we are weak. So give us strength. Give us energy. Help us to love you. I pray that you give us understanding about church membership and the joys of it. We pray, Father, that you be glorified in our commitment to this local body. We ask it in Jesus' name. Okay, so how to think about choosing a church. Can you all see that article there? It's, I think, the 
fourth to last tab in the back. We have to talk about this because uh, when you're in membership class, we're not actually assuming that all of you are going to become members. You know, it's very possible that you might be taking this class to kind of survey Newcastle as you're making a decision on which church to attend. Um, and frankly, uh, we understand that even if you become a member here, um, church membership is not lifelong. Uh, church membership is wow God calls you to be here so sometimes you have to move out of the area for lots of different reasons and we want you to be able to be equipped to think about how should we evaluate Newcastle Bible Church and other local churches and is it even right to evaluate and critique a local church how does the scripture teach us to think about that so the sober reality that we have to start with is that there's actually such a thing as false churches. Just because a, a group of people call themselves a church does not actually make them a church in God's eyes. So if a congregation worships a false god, that's, that's a false church. If they worship the true God in false ways, that's a false church. A church can lose her position. So a church, a, a, a group of people can be a true church and then go to be a false church over time. And you see that example in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. You see these seven letters to the seven churches and how these churches were changing in health over time. Um, even the Ephesus church, you know, we're studying Ephesians right now, church. Well, about 20 years, 30 years after Ephesus was written, um, the Apostle John writes a letter to this same group of people. It's just been 30 years since this letter of, of Ephesians, and they've left their first love. And so they've gone from being a true church to being a false church in just 30 short years. And you see that all over. In fact, isn't it interesting that the church design is 2,000 years old? I mean, the church was started 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, right? But there's, there's no local church around the world that's still true after 2,000 years. And, and he said, well, why is that? You know, why is it that there's not, like, surely God's spirit's strong enough, God's word's strong enough, why can't he preserve a gathering? But I think uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 19 answers this. He says there must, this is King James, there must needs be divisions among you so that those who are approved may be made manifest. Translation, God purposely brings factions or divisions into his churches. God does, not Satan. God does. Why does God do that? So that people have to choose between Christ and culture. Because the longer something goes, the more temptations there are to be loyal to the culture, to be loyal to grandpa, to be loyal to, well, this is my church, and this is how we used to do things, and tradition and precedent will always kill the Spirit of God. And so God purposely allows factions and brings divisions into the church so that people have to choose over and over, am I more loyal to Jesus or to this local tradition? In this local fellowship. So there is such a thing as false churches. On the back of this article, there is an appendix that says um, 
what are the characteristics or the distinguishing marks of a religious cult? Because sometimes there's questions about, is this actually an abusive religious community? Is this a cult? And a cult has three defining doctrinal characteristics and eight defining sociological characteristics. And you can find all of those in the article at the end of this section here of um, how to think about choosing the church. So bottom of page one in your article, a biblical precedent for comparing churches. There are differences among churches regarding strength and health. So when you read the epistles and you compare the churches to which they were written, like you have the church at Thessalonica or the church at Philippi, they were very healthy. Those two churches were very, very healthy when Paul wrote to them. But when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he was trying to correct a lot of things that were happening in that church, and they had serious moral and doctrinal problems. And so you can see that Paul even compares the Bereans, the church at Bereans, with the, the, the church in Thessalonica in his early, and he says, this church was more noble than you because they kept going back and examining to the scriptures to see whether what I was teaching them was true from the word. And so there is biblical precedent for comparing churches. It's not wrong or not judgmental to look at a church and say, here's its strengths and here's its weaknesses. There's no such thing as a perfect local church on earth. So every local church is going to have strengths and weaknesses. So how do we define the health for uh, a local church? And often the health of a local church is going to come by its doctrine what it believes and teaches. Um, so there's 12 biblical characteristics of a local church. So we're going to just kind of soar through with a jet tour here uh, in your articles. These are on page 2. From page 2 to page 9. Or actually, page 2 to page 7. So 2 to 7, there's going to be 12 different characteristics. And I'm just going to walk through just very fast. And as I, as I walk through each of these 12 characteristics of a biblically healthy church. So in other words, these are things where the scripture would say a church should be growing in this area. No church is going to be perfect in this area. But a church should be valuing this and growing in this. Okay. So as I do that, think about other churches that you've been familiar with. And say... You know, how would I understand this particular church's health in this particular area? And that can be a helpful tool to help assess a healthy or God-honoring local church. So first, letter A, a local church should prioritize expository preaching. Um, so what do we think about uh, expository preaching? That's a big fancy word, expository. The, the root of that word is expose. So preaching that exposes the meaning of the text. So expository preaching literally is preaching that exposes the meaning of the text. In other words, if you go to a church service and they don't open the Bible at all during the message, but they're just telling stories and laughing and having fun and sharing some good moral principles, maybe even saying some wonderful truths about God, but they don't 
open the Bible, or if, they're, if you're not hearing, if you walk into a, a church and you see nobody's carrying the Bible into this church, that's a good sign that uh, you're probably not practicing expository preaching. Expository preaching is that preaching that says, I want the point of the passage to be the point of my sermon. So my goal as the preacher is to expose the meaning of the text, not just to pontificate about some pet project that I have or some idea that I have for the congregation or some thing I'm really passionate about myself. I want to make the point of my sermon the same as the point of the text. Okay? So that's expository preaching. Um, local church should be saturated with a God-centered focus. We talked, remember our definition of God-centeredness? Does this look familiar from the first time we met? Anybody, does this look familiar yet? This is the shiny donut, right? So what, what, if we're going to exist for the glory of God, if we're going to be God-centered, then we have to be growing in the doctrinal soundness of truth, the humble dependence of faith, the missional faithfulness of witness, and the relational wholeness of love, right? And if, if I make any one of these the purpose for my existence, I will become man-centered. But God-centered says these are means. These are all necessary means to help me accomplish the glory of God. The reason we care about our doctrine, the reason we care about our faith and prayer, the reason we care about our disciple-making, the reason we care about our love is so that we can live for the glory of God. We can be God-centered in our focus and have a biblical theology, a biblical understanding of the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion. Like, I think in central Illinois, uh, and probably not just central Illinois, but there's such a weak understanding of conversion. People, churches don't prioritize the doctrine of conversion, and if you don't prioritize the doctrine of conversion, you end up just prioritizing people's decisions as the basis for their salvation. And so you have a whole bunch of people who think they're saved but haven't ever been converted because they've prayed a prayer or they've signed a card or they've, they've gone up to an altar, but they haven't actually been transformed supernaturally. So the doctrine of conversion is so essential for any local church that seeks to faithfully proclaim the gospel message. So... Um, Go over to page four. The local church should practice a biblical understanding of evangelism. So uh, how do you know if you've been a faithful evangelist? Go ahead and help me out on this one. How do you know if you've been a faithful evangelist? Or I can say it differently. How do you know if you've been successful in evangelism? The temptation is to answer that and say, well, when somebody gets saved, I'm a successful evangelist if people are being saved. But that's actually not true. Because does the evangelist have the power to save people? No, that's God, conversion. So faithful or successful evangelism is faithfully proclaiming the gospel to sinners. Anytime you faithfully share the gospel with an unbeliever, you were successful as an evangelist. 
no matter how they respond. So the outcome or their response is up to God. But sowing the seed, getting the word out, sharing the gospel is the work of the evangelist. So evangelism, a, a, a biblical understanding of evangelism will always be telling people with honesty, with urgency, and with joy the truth of Christ's work and person so that they might respond to that and be saved. But I am a successful evangelist if I share the glory of the gospel and the truth of the gospel with others, with honesty, with urgency, and with joy. Remembering to pray, because after all, salvation is the work of God. So then, uh, number six here, the local church should uphold a biblical practice of ordinances. So one of the healthy expressions of a healthy church is that they uh, practice the ordinances. What are the ordinances? God has given two ordinances to the local church, one of which we practiced last week, the ordinance of baptism. The other ordinance is the Lord's Supper. So healthy churches are going to be regularly baptizing believers to publicly identify them with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and then enjoying intimacy with each other and with Christ in communion and remembering Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as a normal rhythm and habit of their worship. So what is the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament? Good question. Ordinances and sacraments actually refer to the same thing. Sacrament is the Catholic word for ordinances because the, the word sacrament tends to carry with it some meaning that says these two practices actually infuse grace. They actually have some way of changing you when you practice them. So uh, because we say, oh, well, baptism actually doesn't make you more holy. Doesn't, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't change your spiritual standing. But in the Catholic teaching, baptism is actually what cleanses you, regenerates you, changes you. So it's a sacrament. It's a means of God's saving grace to you. When we take communion here, we say, well, communion is memorialistic. It's we remember what Christ did. And so there's a benefit to us because we're remembering. But it doesn't actually change us through this supernatural, mystical uh, taking in of Christ. You know, Catholic Church is a sacramental system that says, no, actually that, that wafer, they would actually say, becomes the body of Christ and literally gives you grace. So if you're not taking communion, you're not having the power that you need to live your Christian life. So we, in the Christian Protestant tradition, we use the word ordinance instead of sacrament, even though they're referring to the same things, but sacrament tends to communicate some infusion of transformation in the ceremony itself. That we see that in scripture. You missed the, the, the which, which part? Take it very seriously. Yeah. I know it's not literally. Right. I mean, yeah. But 
to me it is yeah. when I do this. Yeah. I'm humbling myself. Yep. Yeah, so the, 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 that part's good. The false doctrine is bad. <laughs> so, so, we, we, so what happens sometimes, and this is, this is a good discussion for churches because what happens sometimes is we grow up with false doctrine, whether it's Catholic church or in my case, I grew up in kind of a, a, a local church that had a bunch of false doctrine. And we get nostalgic. We, we actually kind of enjoy some of the, the, the memories of it, the, the feelings of it, the emotions of it. But then we come to understand, well, wait a minute, that wasn't based in truth, you know? And so we have to disconnect our, we have to, the, the goal of the Christian is always to reconnect your emotions to the right truth. So that your emotions are being fueled by truth and not deception. So it's good to take communion seriously. It's good to feel special about it. It's good to have wonder and awe and sobriety and joy in that communion. But it'd be wrong to have those emotions if those emotions are being fueled by a wrong doctrine or a, a false teaching. If you're saved, it should be right. Yeah, and if you're saved, then you can enjoy it with... Yeah, right. He's like, this isn't what's saving me right now. Communion doesn't save me. Baptism doesn't save me. So why don't we take it every week? Yeah, the scripture doesn't command how often to take it. It just says regularly. And so um, we actually uh, just take it. Our practice right now is once every two months. So the first Sunday of every other month is what our rhythm is. Um, it wouldn't be sinful to take it every week. Um, our concern with why we don't is that if you take it every week, then it starts to become more mundane. Right. And so there's just this tension between how do you still make it special and mean, meaningful, but not um, so far apart that it's kind of not valued. So, yeah, because, because it's not the means of God's grace to us, then don't feel like we have to take it every week. We try to take it by your Lord. Yeah, but it's something God commanded us to do, and in that way, it's it's very important. So, let's see. Did I skip? Feels like my notes are. Why do you baptize right in the middle? I thought baptism would come after we become members. And then you're oh, that's a good question. Uh, so the, the question is, why do we baptize before you become a member, right? right. Yeah, so um, what does baptism identify you with? Christ. Right. So baptism identifies you with the head of the church. What does church membership identify you with? The body. The body. The church. So you should be identified with the head before you're identified with the body. So baptism publicly identifies you with Christ. Now that you're with Christ, you should be with his body. So that's the key point. Yeah. Good question. On page five, we're on number seven. The local church should employ a biblical understanding of church membership. So... Um, a biblical understanding of church membership. So let me just read this. Church membership is a reflection of a living commitment to Christ and his body, an outer symbol of an inner reality, since the church is the body of Christ. The local 
collection of Christians who are committed to Christ and to each other. You cannot formally exclude someone if he's not formally included in the first place. So often the formal inclusion in church membership is initiated by baptism and symbolized by participation in the Lord's Supper. So um, there's really some good reasons on the bottom of page 5 to, to be a formal member of a church. Number one, to assure yourself, to help make sure that you are saved. Church membership doesn't save you, of course. But when you actually sit with a couple elders and share your testimony and they ask you questions and they say, yeah, we believe based on what you've shared and that there's reasons to believe God has caused you to be born again. You've been converted. That's an assurance. Like That's, that's helpful in those times of doubt. It's like, no, other godly people around me have seen God's spirit at work within me. They, they, can bear, they bear witness that I am truly a child of God. That's an, that's an assurance that comes from church membership. Church membership also helps us to evangelize the world, to cooperate and take the gospel to those who have not heard by making the gospel visible to the world by the lives that we're living together. So it's funny when you think about this, but the world actually has opinions about the local church. They know us. They work with us. They go to school with us. They live with us in our communities. So they have opinions about what's here. And so membership is a way of making sure that the people who are here are truly sharing in the same missions, sharing in the same values, walking together, and witnessing together to the world, and not just some um, undefined collection of people that have all kinds of different beliefs and practices and different kinds of walks. We have a reputation for the sake of Christ together. Christians, uh, another reason to join a church is to expose false gospels. Uh, in other words, uh, when, you, when you join with a church, you're saying, yeah, this is a church that represents Christ. So when you're talking to neighbors, say, this is my church. This is where I go to church. This is, this is a good place that is going to teach this truth of Christ. When you join a church, you're strengthening, you're edifying the church. You're, you're letting the pastors and other members know that we intentionally intend to be committed in our partnership of ministry together. And that helps us to glorify God in that way. If you turn the page, we're going to keep moving. Number eight, local church should practice biblical church discipline. Um, did you guys talk about church discipline last week with uh, Chad and Mike? Like briefly. briefly. So do you guys know what a um, defibrillator is? Defibrillator is one of those things on the wall that if somebody's having a heart attack, you can shock them and save their life. All clear. Like it's kind of you don't want to mess around with it. It's like it's a serious deal, but it's a life-saving device, right? Do we have one here? Yeah, we do. We have them all over, all over our buildings, but we have one in each building actually. So we have two. But yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, we have a great team. They. They've used them recently, even our folks here. So, but nobody wants to be used, nobody wants a defibrillator to be used on them, unless you're dying. Why? And then you're like, I'm willing to be shocked because it, was, it has the potential to save my life. Church discipline is not punitive. It's not punishment. 
it's the most loving thing a church family can do for one of its own members who's burrowing into sin and becoming deceived by sin's lies and continuing to follow a path that's going to destroy them or others spiritually. The most loving thing to do is not to say, oh well, it's his life, I guess he'll do what he'll do and turn her back and just let him drive off a cliff. That's not love. That's not what families do for each other. Families say, hey brother, how can I help? It seems like you're really struggling. Like, this isn't good for you. Like, how are you processing this? Like, are you thinking about this right? This isn't good. Like, you, God's not going to bless this kind of living. Like, how can I help you? Church discipline is where Matthew 18. Go to Matthew 18 really quick in your Bibles. It's worth going there. Um, Matthew 18. Look at verses 15 to 17. So there's really kind of four different steps in that passage, if you follow it. The first step is, if somebody sins against you, or you see their sin, you become a witness of their sin, and you go to them privately, you don't talk to your neighbors, you don't talk to other people in the church about it, you go to them privately, and you say, hey sister, I, I just saw this, or you know what you said really hurt me, I'm just concerned. Would you be willing to repent? Like, how can I help you pursue joy in Christ? And they repent? You just did step one of church discipline, and it was effective, and you never had to go on to anything else. In other words, that's purifying for the church. That's what biblical community is. Wonderful. I, you don't have to ever tell anybody else that you had that conversation. It's like, that's, that's in the past, and you, you've been reconciled. You moved forward. But let's say... The person kind of digs in and says, what do you mean? You know, gets all mad and huffy, and they don't respond right. You pray about it some more. You take a couple other people with you, other people that saw and are witnesses to the same thing. You say, hey, this isn't just a misunderstanding. Like, there's three of us here that actually saw the same thing. Like, we all agree it's, it's not right for you to be leaving your wife right now. Like, this, is, this is not going to lead to your joy. You think it is, but it's not. This is not going to honor God. How can we help you? We want to help you. And if he listens to that small group and says, you know what, brothers, you're right. I was going to I'm so sorry. I need help. I'm hurting. All right. Well, we're here to help you. Like, we're not here to judge you. We're here to help you. How can we help? And you work towards restoration. Life goes on. Nobody ever has to know. That's step two of church discipline. And that actually worked well. So he didn't respond well with private, but with a few others coming alongside, now there's repentance. Super. But what happens if there's not repentance after a few others come alongside after step two? Well, then it says, tell the church, verse 17. Tell it to the church. And this is where we go to the church membership. So, for example, 
And we've done this a lot recently, unfortunately. But uh, two, three weeks ago, um, our members received an email from the elders about one of our sisters here. And uh, this sister, we love her so much. We love her so much. We care for her deeply. But this sister has got deceived by sin, and uh, so much so that she has moved in with an unbeliever and is engaged in sexual sin and um, pursuing life together with an unbeliever man. Okay, now we love this sister, right? But what she's doing is going to destroy her soul. And so we're, we're, we've went one-on-one, one-on-one, no repentance. We took a group, no repentance. So now we send a letter to all the members in our church and say, please pray for our sister. She is caught in an unrepentant pattern of idolatry that leads to sexual sin. Please do not gossip, do not slander, but if you know her, go to her, urge her to repent, encourage her, pray for her. The prayers of the church are helpful, right? And so we're, we're in the middle of that process this month as a church, pursuing this sister. Now that's love. The sister doesn't like it. She's calling us all kinds of, she doesn't like it. She's mad. She doesn't want to be pursued. No, like when you became a member, you said, no, I want to be loved like this. <laughs> I want, if I, I want you to do this to me. If you become members here, you're, you're making that commitment to me as well. Like if you see Kevin persisting in sin, in unrepentant sin, and I don't respond well to you, you're going to bring others around. Like we got to love each other. Well, this world is hard. Like sin is deceptive. We need the body. Our eternal security is a community project. So this month we've been pursuing her. Now, at the, if there's no repentance yet at the end of this month, our members are going to get a, a, another letter about this sister that says, thanks so much for praying for her. Please continue to love her. We still love her very much, but we have to remove her membership. And she's now to be considered as an unbeliever. And that's what the text means in step four. It says, he should now be considered like a publican or a tax collector. In other words, an unbeliever. Somebody outside the covenant community. So they're still welcome at the church, just not... Always, in this case, because it's not false teaching. If it's false okay. teaching, they would not be welcome at the church. Okay. But in this case, it's not false teaching. Yeah, we want her, we want her and there's, there's several other situations that are happening right now sure. that our members are praying for. Okay. So if you become a member, so you're not a member, so you probably didn't, hopefully you didn't know about any of that, right? Because our members shouldn't be talking to people about that. That's between them and God, and then if they know them, they go to that person. But... But if you become members now, you, you are invited into that process of biblical church discipline. It's not punitive. It's not punitive. It's restorative. Yeah, it's no fun to all clear, tell the church. But it's, it has the potential to restore their life if they repent. But if they and don't... It builds their end to Yeah, right. Right. So... This is probably one of the areas that it's uh, because it's so countercultural. A lot of local churches do not practice church discipline biblically, and so that's a good test. It's a good litmus test of how how does this church, how healthy is this local church when it comes to how it treats sin in its own ranks? How does it handle that? Okay, and there is a there is a whole article um, at the back of how I should understand or relate to my church leadership. There's a whole article there on a biblical understanding of spiritual restoration 
that's a, a three-page article that talks about how Newcastle does church discipline here. We call it spiritual restoration. Number nine, back on page six here of how to think about choosing a church. Local church should be actively committed to discipleship and growth. Um, so, you know, be focused on growing its members in the four necessary means, the glory of God. The church should evidence biblical understanding of church leadership, number 10. In other words, that there's biblical elders that are in plurality. So the scripture is very clear. No one person is responsible to care for the flock. He entrusts that to a plurality of godly men. And they work together in plurality to shepherd the flock. The local church, number 11, should demonstrate loving concern for the needs of the people. In other words, uh, have legitimate ways to help people with physical needs. Like this week, there's two of our members. We paid several bills. We paid an electric bill. We paid a, um, uh, another bill for two of our members that are just in financial, very difficult times. And so that's something that... We have a whole team of deacons that works together with a benevolence team to make sure we're being responsible but very generous in how we care for each other's real legitimate needs. Last night I got a call from somebody whose um, mother is dying, and so we started a meal train last night for this family so that the, the ladies in the church can be baking up a storm and showering this family with meals as they're around the bedside of their loved one. So we care for needs, you know, for the legitimate needs of the family. The local church should prioritize worship in all of its corporate expressions, whether it's giving or singing or praying or spiritual ministry. So lots of good ways there. There's more than we have time to cover right now, but just different aspects of spiritual health for a local church. Now on pages 8 and 9, these are really important. I want to spend some time here. Appropriate reasons for removing yourself from a local church. There may come a time when you need to leave Newcastle Bible Church, or you may have been coming to Newcastle Bible Church from another church. And so if that's the case, think about there's appropriate reasons and non-appropriate reasons to leave a local church. So here's some appropriate, uh, well, let's look at number A, letter A on page 8. Personal sin whether it's yours or someone else's, is not a reason to separate yourself from a local congregation. This is, a, this is commonly misunderstood and misdone. <laughs> uh, now, if it's persisted in and it's not repented of and the church refuses to do discipline and they just continue to tolerate sin, then, of course, yes, you've got to leave. But just because somebody sins against you and look at you crosswise or calls you a bad name isn't a reason to leave the church. That's a reason to pursue reconciliation, to pursue restoration, to pursue spiritual discipline. But, but so often people get their feathers ruffled because somebody did something stupid, somebody sinned somewhere, somehow, and instead of engaging with that and trying to be part of the solution, they just have to leave. Say, I'm out of here. That's a place full of sinners. <laughs> Frankly, every church has sinners, right? Like we're all got sin. So personal sin is not alone a reason to leave. It's a reason to engage and to actually press in to make sure that we can um, exhaust all efforts of patient and gentle restoration first. So letter B, appropriate reasons for leaving might be doctrinal. So if there's some key doctrinal reasons 
or dis differences, key doctrinal disagreements. Um, remember, not all doctrines created equal. We have uh, first order doctrine, which is, is doctrine that you have to believe in order to be saved. If you, if you don't believe this, you cannot be a Christian. There'd be doctrines like salvation by grace or doctrines like the Trinity or doctrines like uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. Like if you, if you don't believe that, you can't be a Christian. So if there's any differences on first order doctrines, you've got to leave that church. But then there's second order doctrines. In other words, true Christians can disagree on this, but these are going to be doctrines that are likely going to, going to uh, uh, define church, uh, you know, I don't, want to, I don't like this word, but church traditions. In other words, maybe what you believe about baptism or what you believe about um, speaking in tongues or what you believe about um, the supernatural sign gifts of you know, prophecy. If you disagree on these type of doctrines, it's going to be hard for you to have joyful unity in the same church because you're going to keep bumping into each other. Like You're going to say, you need to baptize my infant, you know, instead of baptizing believers. And it's like, well, we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't believe that's right. And so, like, if, if that's really what you believe, you can be a Christian and baptize infants as long as you don't believe it's salvific, but, but you're probably not going to be in the same church together. So there might be some doctrinal issues here. So first and second order doctrine issues are often good reasons for people to say, you know what, this probably isn't the best church for me. There's going to be another church that's going to be better for me. But there's lots of ways that we can disagree on doctrine and still be part of part of the same same church. They're not essential. They're maybe things that, hey, we can agree to disagree on that. Like, I, I want to learn from you. But I don't, I don't really see it that way, but it's not something that we have to part fellowship over. Where would eschatology fall? Most often, eschatology falls in the third order level of doctrine. So the, the doctrine of the end, end times and last things. What about the inerrancy of scripture? Yeah, so inerrancy of scripture is, is uh, for sure one of these first two. Um, depending on how you define it and think about it, it, you know, it's probably second order. But it's, it's saying, yeah, we, we believe scripture. I mean, it's, it's, I would say the authority of scripture is probably um, a first order. But the fact that scripture is inerrant, probably second. So, you know, there can be some debate even about, you know, how important is this particular doctrine. But I think the discussion is healthy just to recognize not every doctrine is of equal weight. All doctrine is important, of course, but not all doctrine is of equal weight um, when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Well, I think even some of the joy of fellowship can be had in differences in the third area. Right, right. As long in as other words, it's, it's, it's like I can agree to disagree, but we can still be completely united in our love for Jesus and in our mission together for the glory of God. But if, if, you know, I've had situations even in membership class before where people have disagreed with something I said and stormed, stood up and stormed out, you know, well, then it's probably not the best church for you if that's, if you're going to have such an emotional reaction of disagreement that, you know, I hate to see that, but we don't have to be the local church for everybody, right? That's okay. So, um, 
Another reason, uh, important reason for leaving might be a matter of conscience. So when you, uh, you think about matters of conscience, conscience is your guilt-o-meter. So it's your divine uh, gift that God has given you. So it comes from God, and it's your assessment of am I guilty or am I innocent. It's your personal self-assessment of guilt. So when you say something's a conscience issue, you're saying for me to participate in that would be sin. It's different than saying it's my preference. So don't throw around conscience willy-nilly because conscience is guilt or guilty or not guilty, sinful or not sinful. And Romans 14, 23 says, uh, whatever is sin to you, whatever you consider to be sin is sin to you. So if you think it's sinful, don't do it. <laughs> Even if it's not sinful, if you think it's sinful, don't do it because you're training your conscience that when it's pegging guilty, that you can go forward and ignore the guilty signal in the warning light. So if, some, if there's a conscience issue where you're like, man, I just think this is sinful, and you talk to people like, it's actually not sinful. Christ has given us freedom in this. But you're like, yeah, but for me, it just feels sinful. That'd be a conscience issue that you'd have to move to a different church uh, over that disagreement. And then obviously practical reasons like geographic moves or, um, you know, uh, just practical reasons to, to change. So there's a really helpful appendix here. Important considerations before leaving a local congregation. If you, if you have left another congregation recently, highly encourage you to look at page 12. Take it seriously. Be honest with yourself. Sometimes the most God-glorifying thing for you to do from a Newcastle Bible Church membership class is actually to go back and return to your former church. And that's not the true for everybody. But if it is, we want to help you to do that well. And even if you've left poorly, go back. Even if there's good reasons to leave, but you left sinfully. You said harsh words. You attacked your people. You, you were divisive in how you left. That needs to be repented of. We want to help you to go back and glorify God even in your repentance. You might not have to go back to that church, but you want to take responsibility and say, you know what, the way I left was not honoring to Christ. Because if it's, if it's a true church, even though it's not maybe healthy, but if it's a true church um, and Christ loves her, Christ died for her, and you don't want to speak ill against Christ's bride, so those are some thoughts about how to find a church on page 10 and 11. Uh, there's a good, uh, some seven quick tips. We always recommend people go to church as close to your home location as possible. So if you're driving past other churches to come to Newcastle Bible Church, really think about that. Like if you're driving past other good churches, ask why am I not going to that church? Just because... God intends for you to live and be his church in your community. So we want you to think hard about, um, make sure you have good reasons to drive past other good churches if you're going to come to Newcastle Bible Church. Okay, that, that's all the time we have to spend on that article for right now. Uh, any questions about how to think about choosing a local church? All right. Next time, we're going to have to spend some time on the church membership article. So we'll do that next time. We'll do um, the church membership article next time and the membership covenant. 
So we just got five minutes left. Um, any questions for me about anything that I can help answer in the last five minutes that we have together here today? that and say how significant is a, a church's tradition on their interpretation of scripture? Is that what you're asking? Through history. Through history? Yeah. Like through the entire history. Yeah. So like you're saying like Newcastle's 81 years old, so you're saying like in the last 81 years of this local church? I mean like the last 2,000 years. The 2,000 Got it. Okay. Yeah. Of the universal church. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Um, church history is a great teacher because there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> like history kind of repeats itself. And so church history is a great teacher and you can learn a lot about um, decisions that were made in church history that were not made in a vacuum. They were made in a t context. They were made in a historical context, often reacting to something that was happening going on in the culture. So, um, so that can be very helpful to know that. I don't know how to answer your question. I mean, there's, there's basic theological traditions, like you have the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, you have the Eastern Orthodoxy tradition, you have the, um, uh, the Anabaptist tradition that comes as a response you know, to the Reformation, you have the Reformation tradition. You have all these traditions that church history can inform us about and tell us about. Um, I would say one thing that comes to mind is historical legitimacy is not the same as biblical legitimacy. So just because it was true in history does not make it true in scripture. So just because it happened doesn't mean it was right. But is there any weight? Like if you're like really trying to figure out where scripture, what scripture is actually saying, is there any weight at all yeah. that the historical interpretation I, I'm very slow to put any authority in history. It has influence, okay. but not authority. Yes. Okay. So, so I would say the scripture has authority to define what is right and wrong. I can learn from history, so I can benefit from its influence, I can benefit from its testimony, but I have to evaluate history based on the authority of scripture, not the authority of what worked or the authority of. So are we talking about where, I guess people say things don't apply today because of history, or? I was talking more about like, uh, just not that we, but going back to the communion thing. Yeah. What, like, is it a fair question to ask did the church always believe that yes. communion was purely symbolic? Right, yeah. Can that factor in at all? Yeah. Or, or yeah. like you said, influence, not authority, but like yeah. influence. Yeah, and you can learn a lot by doing that study and seeing, uh, like, okay, at this council, they talked about this matter, and lots of really godly people got together and studied for months, and this is what they, this is kind of some conclusions they came to. That can be very, very helpful. That can be very, very helpful. At the end of the day, we don't want to take the creeds or the council 
of church history as the same authority of scripture. In fact, I would say they have no authority in my mind. So if they're effective, they're helpful because they're helping me better understand the scriptures. So, yeah. You, know, you see, even with Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, you know, uh, the leaders of Judaism, so they were so committed to their traditions and their culture that Jesus had to rebuke them because they had totally lost sight of the whole meaning of why God said what he said because it had become so insulated by this external culture of religion. So. How many more weeks we got? Yeah. So next week will be our last week on the membership class. And then... Um, Scott Cruzy, one of our elders, and his wife, Teresa, will come, and they're going to teach the shape class to you um, for about three weeks, and then I'm going to come back and do one final week with you at the end of just kind of uh, a Q&A. So they will do a three-week class with you on basically how can I learn about the ministries of this church and better connect with the ministries of this church so that I can use the grace that God has given me to benefit the entire pulse of the body. Here. So we're getting the full realm of the whole thing. You're getting the whole enchilada. The last, last class that I started and didn't finish, it was not. Right, it was Very just this. Yes. This time you get the whole burrito. Let me pray for you. Let you go. Father, thank you. for your glory. For the sake of your name, I pray. Amen.